0: Welcome to Jmart's State of Health podcast. I'm your host, Jmart, and on this podcast, I want to share my experiences as a personal trainer and health coach, as well as my personal stories from self experimentation about the various aspects of health, ranging from physical training and nutrition to other lifestyle choices. On this episode of the podcast, I did another analysis of a scientific journal article about nutrition. Specifically, this article is about the effects of replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat. If this topic is interesting to you, then you should also check out my previous podcast episode where I did a similar analysis of a review article on saturated fat alone and its impact on cardiovascular disease. Today's article that we'll do a deep dive on suggests that replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat has a beneficial impact for coronary heart disease outcomes. In my review of this article, I go over the data in a detailed manner to establish how closely it supports the claims the authors are making. In summary, the authors present eight separate studies, all of which alone show no statistical significance between control and diet intervention groups regarding heart attacks and related deaths. But, when the data was combined, altogether, there was a 19% relative risk or 2% absolute risk reduction in the intervention group that was statistically significant. However, if you try to separate out the high quality evidence from the low quality evidence, then there is no statistically significant risk reduction anymore. In fact, the study with the largest number of participants was suggestive of a higher risk for the diet intervention group. Furthermore, if you disregard heart attacks and only look at heart attack related deaths or deaths from all causes, then again there is no statistically significant change observed between control and diet intervention groups. All taken together, I don't believe the data presented by the authors of this article supports their claim that polyunsaturated fatty acid replacement of saturated fatty acids in a diet has a beneficial effect on coronary heart disease. So, if all that sounds interesting, then this episode is for you. Just before we get started, this is a reminder that you can get started with my free body weight training program, Body Basics, which requires no equipment by going to subscribepage.com bodybasics. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to smash the like button for the YouTube algorithm. Hit subscribe if you like the content and hit the notification bell too. Alright, here's the episode. Hey everybody, it's Jmart. Welcome to another episode of my podcast. Uh, today I'm going to picking up the thread from the previous episode and do another deep dive into nutrition by going over a journal article. If anyone missed the previous episode, I uh, kind of did an analysis of a review article on saturated fat and its effect on health, specifically cardiovascular health, um, because, uh, oftentimes mainstream nutritional advice is to reduce saturated fat intake to less than 10% of total energy intake. And in that review article, that notion is kind of put under the test of what observational and, um, interventional data is out there and it appears that uh, there's no actual uh, scientific backing behind this recommendation and that's kind of like uh, before I go any deeper I'll admit that that's the bias that I have regarding nutrition is I don't believe that foods full of saturated fat such as butters cheeses uh, meat fatty meat cuts um, I don't think those are unhealthy foods in fact I think the foods with processed uh, uh, processed seed oils such as like um, canola oil, corn oil, um, uh, sunflower, and safflower oil, do- those I-, I don't believe those are the healthy uh, uh, sources of fat, even though um, that is what is often recommended for reducing risk of cardiovascular disease. But uh, you know I'm willing to keep an open mind and f- try to look through evidence that's out there to see if there's anything that persuades me to uh, change my mind. And so I found an article uh, that kind of uh, does claim to do this. And what I'd like to do is go over it, uh, go over the summaries and datas and see if this is something that convinces me to change my mind. And I will share my thoughts with you as I do that through this podcast episode. So join me and let's get started. Here it is. So the name of this article is Effects on Coronary Heart Disease of Increasing Polyunsaturated Fat in Place of Saturated Fat, a Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Control Trials. All right, so let me just uh, break down this uh, uh, title because it's quite long uh, with a lot of uh, complicated uh, terms. So coronary heart disease, of course, that's a A very prevalent disease here in the western world that is when we get plaque buildup in arteries and over extended periods of time if the plaque continues to build up this can lead to a heart attack and of course heart attack related death and in some cases a stroke as well so this is very important to do to study this disease and find ways of uh, ameliorating the effects of it and in this particular study they're looking at replacing saturated fat which is the fat that I think uh, is healthy. And from my previous podcast episode, I said uh, there seems to be no evidence to show that this actually does inc- increase saturated fat, does increase uh, cardiovascular disease. But in this case, they want to replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat. And so uh, just to break down fat a little bit more to get a deeper understanding of what we're talking about, when we think of uh, fat, that's one of the main, main I guess, macronutrients that p- make up people's diets, right? Most people understand that uh, if we break up our food into the three main macronutrients, we have proteins, carbohydrates, and fat. And fat can be further subdivided into a saturated kind and an unsaturated kind. So what saturated means is if you think of the fatty acid uh, chemical structure, there are carbon bo- uh, carbons that are connected to one another, one another. And some carbons are connected with a single bond and some are connected with a double bond. Now, when the chain of carbons is fully connected with all single bonds, what that means is that the remainder of the carbon uh, bonds are fully saturated with hydrogen molecules. And uh, the structure of that chain of carbons is pretty much a straight line. Okay, and then when you have an unsaturation, it means there is a carbon-carbon double bond. Now, it can be just a single carbon-carbon double bond, which makes it a monounsaturated fatty acid, or there can be multiple, more than one, making it a polyunsaturated fatty acid. And again, this has an effect on the structure of the chemical fatty acid in that wherever there's a double bond, it's no longer a straight chain of carbons. There, now there's a kink or a twist introduced at that point of the carbon, carbon double bond, which changes, like I said, the shape. And in from our perspective, the main difference that we see between a saturated and unsaturated fat is at room temperature, they have different states. So the saturated fat is solid state. Uh, think of butter at room temperature, it's solid. And then polyunsaturated fats, seed oil such as canola oil or corn oil at room temperature, they're liquid and so in this case like i said again they're studying the effects on the coronary heart disease by replacing the uh, saturated fat which is solid at room temperature with polyunsaturated fat which is liquid at room temperature and systematic review just simply means they went through all the data that is publicly available that looks at this uh, issue of uh, replacing one type of fat with another and they did a meta-analysis where they combined some of the results um Uh, from the different trials to see if there's some sort of grand effect that they can uh, notice by doing so. All right. So I just did a quick search of the name of the main author here, this man, Martin Catan, to see if there's anything striking about him that we should know before jumping into the article. So I did a Google search on him and it turns out he has a Wikipedia page and he is a Dutch professor of nutrition from the University of Amsterdam. He's written two popular science books. Um, nothing uh, surprising or striking. So moving on to the article, let's go with it together. Let's do a quick summary of the whole thing first, and then we'll dive deeper, dive deeper into like, the specific results. But it's good to have a quick summary so that we have an overall grand idea of what we're going to read through later on. So in the background here, the authors start by saying that coronary heart disease is the leading cause of death among adults in developed countries. And they say the key risk factors for coronary heart disease are smoking, physical inactivity, and poor diet. And I really like that they included this part here in the background, uh, stating that there's more than one way to deal with coronary heart disease and manage it. And in fact, I think what this makes me think is even if we intervene with a good diet for people who are who might uh, you know, be at risk of coronary heart disease, there's still other lifestyle factors that need to be addressed as well in order to actually see a real result in, uh, in someone's health, a good outcome that is. Anyway, so moving on, they addressed the question of why was this study done? Well, so they say because of the connection between eating saturated fat and high blood LDL cholesterol levels, So we know uh, from intervention studies, there's empirical data that shows when we increase saturated fat consumption, blood LDL cholesterol levels do rise. And then, so that's interventional data that demonstrates that connection. But there's also observational data that shows that high LDL levels, high LDL cholesterol levels in the blood are associated with higher cardiovascular disease risk. So because of this association of high LDL, with high risk, then reduced saturated fat consumption is recommended as a way to avoid coronary heart disease. However, though, the authors go on to say that the evidence from individual randomized controlled trials that have studied coronary heart disease events, such as heart attacks and related deaths, have been mixed and could not support this recommendation. All right. So even though there's some sort of like theoretical data that does support um, reducing saturated fat, this hasn't actually never been shown empirically through an intervention, but the authors go on to say, they talk about uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids. Now, uh, I'm just going to call polyunsaturated fatty acids PUFAs because that's the acronym they use. Because of their beneficial effects on blood LDL cholesterol and HDL cholesterol levels, PUFA could be one of the mo- could be one important replacement for saturated fatty acids. But increasingly, some experts argue that eating PUFA could actually increase coronary heart disease risk. Consequently, some guidelines recommend that PUFA consumption should be limited or even reduced. So again, um, there is data to show that uh, when we look at LDL and HDL, so LDL is known as the good cholesterol and HDL is the bad cholesterol. I'm doing quotation marks around good and bad for those only listening. This is an old way of looking at cholesterol, and um, there is uh, much sophisticated ways of looking at at it now. And uh, it's uh, it's just an old lens, and we can't really think of it that way. But regardless, uh, PUFAs, or polyunsaturated fatty acids, are known to lower LDL levels and increase HDL levels. And this is thought to be good, because again, these associations with cardiovascular disease. So, that's why people think that it might be a good replacement for saturated fat, but again they do I do like how honest this paper is in stating that some people argue against this saying that you know it could actually increase the risk. But regardless, the authors go on to say that so they will try to assess the impact of increased PUFA, polyunsaturated fatty acid consumption as a replacement for saturated fatty acids on coronary heart disease events. So what exactly do they find? Do they do and find? Well, they found eight trials. And in these eight trials, they had participants that were randomized to increase their PUFA intake for at least a year, and in which which the coronary heart disease events were reported. Eight trials like this. And in these eight trials, there were 1,042 coronary heart disease events, and they were recorded among 13,600 participants in the trials. Uh, So in these trials, on average, the PUFA consumption had been slightly less than 15% of total energy intake for the intervention group. And for the control group, it was only 5%. So this is a huge increase from 5% of total energy intake to 15 tripling the amount in the intervention group compared to the control. So what were the results? Well, the authors say that the intervention group had a 19% reduced risk of coronary heart disease events compared to the participant group in the control group. All right. And they also say that uh, they found benefits associated with PUFA consumption. They, they increase with longer duration of trials. Okay, so that sounds very promising. So we're noticing that uh, in the intervention group, when you triple the amount of PUFA, polyunsaturated fatty acid consumption, you get a 19% reduced risk. And the longer you do it for, the better the results. This is what they say in the summary. Okay, now let's go dive deeper into the full article and tease everything apart. Let's start with the introduction. Again, the authors start by talking about uh, uh, cholesterol levels. They say consumption of PUFAs lowers total to HDL cholesterol ratio to a greater extent than carbohydrates or any other major fatty acids. Mm -hmm. And they say that this is the... Best single lipid predictor of coronary heart disease risk. So I do believe that the uh, ratio of total to HDL cholesterol is a good predictor of coronary heart disease risk. But I believe there's this is a this is an old study from uh, what, what year is it from? Uh, Twenty ten. This is an old study, and I, I believe there's new data to say to support that uh, there are better there are even better predictors of coronary heart disease risk. I believe particle size of the ldl cholesterol it might be considered an even better uh predictor but regardless let's not get too tangential here it it, it does according to them uh uh improve this uh ratio of ldl total to hdl cholesterol um more so than carbohydrates or other fatty acids, okay? And because PUFA consumption may also improve insulin resistance and reduce systemic inflammation, for these reasons, the authors say that PUFAs may be an ideal replacement for saturated fatty acids. So again, there's a lot of uh, theoretical uh, ideas for why PUFAs might be good. However, they go on to repeat again, saying that several control intervention trials have evaluated whether increasing proof of consumption as replacement for saturated fatty acids impacts risk of coronary heart disease events. But results of these trials have been inconsistent, with majority of studies demonstrating no significant benefit. Yep. So, yeah, the data is not there to support this claim, even though theoretically it makes sense. And this happens all the time in science. It just, what it, it just means that we don't have a full picture of what's actually going on, and if we just do a little bit more work, maybe we can clear things up, and it'll make sense why this uh, isn't how we predicted things to be. It just means our model's a little bit off. But anyways, regardless, the authors state, s- state that they did a systematic review and meta-analysis of the randomized controlled uh, clinical trials that assess the impact of increased PUFA consumption as replacement for saturated fat on coronary ha- uh, heart disease endpoints. So one thing I didn't mention is the fact that they're looking specifically at randomized controlled clinical trials. And this is really good because these types of trials have the most reliable data that could be uh, obtained. And it's much more believable when there's an effect seen through randomized controlled trials rather than through simply doing a cohort observational study. Okay, so what exactly were their methods? How did they do this? Well, so what they did is they went through the public data and they searched for randomized control trials that had randomized the adults to increase their total or omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid consumption for at least a year without other major interventions. So no blood pressure medication, no smoking control or other dietary interventions. Okay, so they're looking at increase of both total and omega-6 PUFAs. Now, Most of the time, omega-6 PUFAs are from plant sources, but you can also get omega-3 PUFAs, which are from um, uh, animal sources. So looking both at total and omega-6 kind of skews the data a little bit because you're not dividing it up between the plant and animal sources. And that's usually where like the distinction kind of lies between people. But regardless, let's move on. What other criteria did they use for uh, searching trials, they made, had to make sure that these trials had an appropriate control group without the dietary intervention. So yeah, that's very important. Uh, you always want to be able to compare to uh, you know the control group that didn't receive whatever the intervention was. And then of course, they also looked for uh, studies that reported hard coronary uh, disease events. So hard events are either myocardial infarction, infarction so heart attacks, heart attack-related deaths, sudden deaths, They also had some exclusion criteria. They excluded studies if they were observational or non-randomized. Okay, like I said, the difference between interventional and observational is interventional has a higher impact and more reliable data. So when it was observational, they just excluded that, which is really good. And they tried to not include uh, non-randomized trials because you know there's uh, too much. Uh, biasing that way when data is not randomized. They also excluded studies that tested mainly the omega-3 PUFA interventions. So this is good uh, when there was just a, a study with a reliance on only omega-3 PUFAs. They excluded those studies, but they do say they included ones that had the omega-6 and total. So there, it's not a perfect study, but it's it's all right. So they also excluded studies that had soft coronary heart disease endpoints. So this would be angina. Okay. And they did not include any commentaries, review articles, or duplicate publications of the same studies, which makes sense. Here's an interesting point that they include, which I think points out the major limitation of this study, is they included both feeding trials and trials that utilized dietary advice. And I think that's just uh, very... Interesting that they decided to include both of those together because it's so different to be actually providing meals for a uh, a, a population and knowing exactly what food they're consuming versus only providing dietary advice and having no idea what level of uh, adherence to the advice is kept by the patient population. So um, it makes me question whatever results we can obtain from combining these two sets of data because... They're, they're too different, you know, it's from, in my mind, it's very hard to uh, be able to compare these two, but regardless, let's move on here. They provide a little, uh, summary to demonstrate their kind of screening process. They started with over 300 articles that they identified from databases and through various contraction mechanisms. They brought it down to a total of eight studies that fit the criteria that I just went over okay and additionally they also say that they assessed study quality using a validated scale and the scale included criteria relating to randomization to blinding and withdrawals and dropouts that are together summed up to generate an overall quality score between zero and five okay so quality scores of zero to two indicated lower quality trials and then between three and five indicated high quality trials okay that's good that's good that they do that gives us an idea of which uh, of the data to trust more. So what were the results? Here we go. Let's look at this very closely. So they identified randomized controlled trials that included a total of 1,042 coronary heart disease events among 13,600 participants. So this is good. The eight eight, uh, trials altogether have a pretty large pool of participants over 13,000. This is very good. There was just slightly over a thousand coronary heart disease events. Again, they give us the parameters of the studies kind of combined together. On average, the control group had about 5% of total energy intake uh, BPUFA. And in the intervention group, that number was increased to about 15% of total energy intake. So once again, just uh, highlighting how this is actually a huge increase. In the intervention group of PUFA consumption compared to the control group. The control has uh, on average five percent and the intervention increases that to 15 percent of total energy. Uh, Here's another point from the uh, authors. They say many of the trials had design limitations such as single blinding, inclusion of electrocardiographically defined clinical endpoints, or open enrollment. Okay, so again, I want to point out how what I really like about this is the study is the authors are always very uh, open and clear with the uh, limitations of this of this meta analysis. Uh, And, uh, you know, as long as someone takes the time to read through the entire thing, they understand how much weight to put behind a study or behind the results of a study like this. Okay, so uh, one interesting thing I, that I when I mentioned about the quality scores, right? They gave quality scores between zero and five on the eight trials. Surprisingly, all trials had quality scores of either two or three, right? So two was the lower quality, three uh, belonged in the higher quality, although at the lower echelon. So they didn't really have any data that would be considered really high quality, such as a four or a five. So that's a little bit, you know... Uh, should make you your warning sign go off in again being able to put a lot of weight behind the uh, the results that we see here but all in all combining all trials the pooled risk reduction for coronary heart disease events was 19%. This RR here is risk ratio and it's 0.81 as you can see here and I'll explain what that means. Basically the 19% re- risk reduction is actually a relative risk reduction. It's not an absolute risk reduction. So let me just explain what the difference between an absolute risk reduction and a relative risk reduction is. And that way you'll understand what this actually means. So imagine, and I'm going to just make this up, but let's imagine the risk of coronary heart disease in the control group was 50%. It's not that high. It was much lower, but let's say it was 50% in the control group. Now, If we were to think that this was in 19% absolute risk reduction, then we would simply subtract 19 from 50 to get to 31%. So we would say, okay, the intervention group is 31% risk and the control group is 50% risk. But this was not an absolute 19% risk reduction. This was a relative risk reduction, which means that the risk for the intervention group was 81%, 0.81, 81% 81 of the control, which means relatively nineteen percent lower from the control, so in this case if if the control is fifty percent relatively nineteen percent lower than that would bring us actually down to forty percent, not down to thirty one so that's a big difference now, what are the absolute uh numbers the absolute numbers uh that I'm talking about for these studies? Well, they don't actually provide them, and it's hard to calculate it because they don't say how many of the 13,000 participants were in the control and how many were in the intervention group. If I go through each of the eight trials myself, I would be able to find that data, but the pool data is not provided here in this. They just say the total is 13,000. But if we look at the total risk between both groups, if we look at the percent uh, that 1,000 out of 13 thousand is it's approximately around I think just below eight percent and if there is a 19 percent relative risk reduction in the intervention group most likely that means that the control relative risk or absolute risk would have probably been in the high eight to almost nine percent whereas the uh, absolute risk for the intervention group would have been probably in the low seven percent range so if you look at the numbers that way then the control From the control down to the intervention would have been a drop from, let's say, uh, guess, guessing or guesstimating from about 8.5% down to 7.5%. So it's a 1% to 2% difference in absolute numbers, but a 19% difference in relative risk numbers. So it's just a framing effect. Of course, 90% sounds a lot nicer than 1% or 2%. So keep that in mind because oftentimes this is how data is presented and to be charitable to the authors is probably because mostly academics are reading this data and they're not necessarily, uh, writing this for like a regular person who would not know the difference between relative and absolute risk reduction. But it's good to keep that in mind as we go through the study. So one more time, this RR is the risk ratio, which is, uh, Usually written out as like a number, uh, like uh, close to one, either below or above one. So in this case, it's uh, 0.81, meaning the intervention was 81% as likely uh, as the control group, again, meaning a 19% relative risk reduction. If you look at the numbers like this for all the individual studies, it's nicely presented in this uh, figure here. So here we have the eight. Trials on the left here for each trial, they have the number of events that were counted. And these events are actually myocardial infarctions, So heart attacks and related heart attack related deaths. These are the total numbers of those events. And these are the total numbers of the uh, of the uh, participants in each study and all total together. These again sum up to just over a thousand events for eight studies and just over uh, 13,600 participants in those eight studies. On average, again, there was a 5% PUFA consumption, 5% of total energy PUFA consumption in the control, and on average 15 or a three times increase in the intervention group. Now, in I'm going to try to describe this for people listening, but here we have a kind of a graph where we can see a line that goes straight down the middle pointing to one. So one... RR or relative risk indicates that the relative risk of the intervention group would have been the same as the control group, meaning there was no benefit or risk. Okay. And if the RR value is less than one, it means the risk of the intervention group would have been lower than the control group, which would have been beneficial. Right. And so here we can see that all these uh, three or eight trials have an RR value below one, all except one, actually, there's one study that has an RR value above one. And surprisingly, this study is actually the study with the largest number of participants. So altogether, all eight studies combined to 13,600 participants, but one study actually makes up over 9,000 of that total. So it's a huge study. And in this one, the RR value or the relative risk is actually above one, meaning that there's potentially a risk involved in this intervention trial, interventional diet where PUFA consumption is significantly increased. All right. So keep that in mind. And the second thing to look at is actually these uh, lines that represent the confidence intervals. So not we're given what the average uh, relative risk number is, right? But we're also given a 95% confidence interval range within which the true value could be lying. And in all of the studies, seven out of the eight studies actually. So there's only one study where the confidence intervals do not include the relative risk of one, meaning potentially there could be no improve improvement in, uh, you know, coronary heart disease event outcome, uh, by increasing total, uh, proof of consumption, uh, So it's very interesting to kind of look at the data this way and see how, even though there seems to be some small benefit accruing in in the intervention group, for all of these, it's not really statistically significant. And for the study with the largest number of participants, there's actually potentially a risk involved too. So when I saw this, it was very surprising. Okay, and now let's move on to a little bit, uh, drill down on the data even a little bit more. So here the authors next go on to say that the median duration of all trials was four and a quarter years, and among the four trials with the duration of less than that mean, less than four years, the pooled RR relative risk was 0.91, so only a 9% relative risk reduction. However, among the four trials with the duration of greater than four and a quarter years, Then the pooled relative risk was 0.73, meaning a 27% risk reduction. So that's very interesting. So what they're trying to say is, well, if you follow the diet for a longer period of time, there's clearly a a better, a a stronger benefit. However, it's interesting to note that these are actually not statistically significant. They don't provide a p-value here for for this data, which means that while the data could be suggesting some sort of effect, there's no statistical significance. And interestingly, if you look at the four trials that have a duration of less than 4.25 years, that's actually the majority of the participants. Remember, there was only 13,600 total participants and the four trials that make up uh, the ones that have less than 4.25 in duration, that makes up for, I believe, over 12,000. I went back and checked the numbers over 12,000 of the 13.6 thousand people. And for those people, the relative risk reduction was quite low. In fact, within the confidence intervals, it was well within one, indicating no improvement. And in fact, there was no uh, statistical significance as, was, as there's no p-value provided. And then for the longer duration trials, that's only like uh, 15 or 1600 people compared to the over 12,000 in the previous group that I mentioned. And again, there's no p-value provided, suggesting no statistical significance. And this is what happens when you have small numbers. We always see a greater effect in small numbers because that's just the law of small numbers. That's why we don't trust things, trust results until we get a a, a like a larger data set that includes as many people as we possibly can to give us a true representation of what is go- actually going on. Okay, and then remember we mentioned that the quality of the data was like assessed and they they had given a score of either two or three to these eight trials. Now they say for the six trials with a quality score of two, so the six out of eight, most of the trials had a low quality score of two. The relative risk was 0.78. So they actually saw a higher effect on the low quality data. And then for the two trials, Only two trials out of the eight with a quality score of three, the relative risk was 0.91, meaning only a 9% relative risk improvement. So the high quality data basically shows not a huge amount of improvement. And in fact, the confidence interval, again, is well within one, suggesting that possibly there's absolutely no improvement here at all. And again, there's no p-value provided for either one of these, meaning that these aren't statistically significant anyway. And then here's a really important part of the uh, results section in the secondary analysis restricted to coronary heart disease mortality alone. So they didn't they didn't include any uh, heart attacks. They looked at just the deaths. There were 855 events and uh, the pooled relative risk was 0. 0.8, 0. 0.80. So 20%. So it's basically the same number that they saw uh For the total amount for like both the uh, heart attacks and the heart attack related deaths uh but again there's no p-value provided meaning that this is not statistically significant and if we look at the confidence interval it's pretty close to one suggesting that you know this number is basically is meaningless and then lastly this is the most important the damning part of the evidence where they say evaluating total mortality due to all causes which there were 2,472 events, the pooled relative risk was 0.98, almost 1. So there's absolutely no improvement in total mortality in the uh, intervention group compared to the control group. So that's, you know, very surprising. Like if the um, diet intervention is helping reduce the coronary heart disease related mortality, but causing some other sort of mortality Increased? then is it really helping? We have to ask, us that, ask ourselves that. And again, in both these situations, there's no p-value provided, meaning this was not a st- statistically significant result. All right. And then the last two pieces of evidence here that I highlighted, they talk about the two trials that were double-blinded. There were only two trials out of the eight that were double-blinded. And restricting the re- results to just these two, we get another relative risk that's almost close to one, meaning not a huge improvement in the intervention group. And, and again, no p-value provided, suggesting no statistical significance. So when you include the data, to, when you restrict the data to be like the higher quality data, it just, we don't see the same effect that we, we, we do when we uh, look at everything all together. And then lastly, they talk about uh, the four reports that provided meals. Ie, we're feeding trials. The relative risk was 0.76, so a 24% relative risk reduction. And they do provide the p value here, but the, sorry, I uh, didn't mean to highlight everything. Uh, but the p value is 0.08, and I think it's pretty funny that they include this because any any value above 0.05 is meaningless. Sometimes people like to include this to say like, Oh, it was close to 0.05. So it's like trending towards statistical significance. Well, I'm sorry. That's, that's just not like how, how we do statistics. It either is statistically significant or it's not. And even when you uh, restrict the data to just include the trials that, like I said, would be the higher quality trials from earlier on because they're actually providing the data. So you know exactly what the people are eating. uh, Even then there is no statistical significance. And then, when you do restrict it to the trials that just provided dietary advice, you still see a mild benefit about, so the our risk ratio is 0.84, meaning a relative 16% risk reduction. And now the P value here is below 0.05. But again, the confidence interval is so close to one. And this is such a small uh, improvement that I think, all this data together combined really invalidates the kind of the claims that the, uh, this paper makes, but let's just go on quickly into some of the discussion points that the authors go into as well. They say, whereas nearly all these trials were insufficiently powered to detect a significant effect individually, the pooled results demonstrate a significant benefit of replacement uh, PUFA for saturated fat on clinical coronary heart disease events. I think that's so funny to say that. So like, even though the individual studies themselves show no improvement whatsoever, if we pull all these differently done studies where like different patient groups are given different foods and the measurements are all done differently, but some of the, uh, you know, uh, outputs are kind of similar. So if we just combine it all together, then we do see a a benefit. It's just, that's not very scientific at all. And I don't think they can really claim that uh there's really a benefit here hopefully i was able to uh, make that clear by my some of my critique that i presented and they say that this is only the second dietary intervention together with consumption of long-chain omega-3 fatty acids or fish oil that has now been clearly demonstrated to reduce cardiovascular events in randomized controlled trials and i would say that this has clearly not been demonstrated as there's a lot of weakness in the data and uh when you try to break the, down the data into like the more quality components of it, you find there's no statistical significance that could be shown. And in fact, the data that includes the uh, uh, the trial with the largest uh, number of people, you see a potential risk involved. So I don't know how they can make the statement, but they do. And in another thing that they say is, additionally, our analysis of heterogeneity indicates that longer term trials showed greater benefits suggesting that the benefits of increasing PUFA consumption accrue over time. And this is clearly false because, like I said, first of all, their data showed no statistical significance for this, even though it seemed like there might be a benefit for the longer uh, duration trials. The p-value was not uh, low enough to show that statistical significance. And the amount of people that were actually in the study for long periods of time was very small compared to the total number of people in the study. So it's very hard to make a claim like that. I think the data could be interpreted either way. So uh, it's, it's just based on you to be able to analyze that on your own, though. And, you know, you have to question uh, what the authors are saying and not, don't necessarily have to believe what they say, but see if the data they provide supports their claims. And in my opinion, it does not. Okay, and then last part of the article, they do go over the limitations, which I again, I do appreciate the fact that the the these authors are very honest and provide um, a lot of caveats to what they're presenting, which is very good. So they say many of the identified randomized uh, trials in our meta analysis had important design limitations some trials provided all or most meals, whereas others, ch- other trials relied on dietary advice. Yeah, absolutely. This is a huge limitation. Like, you, It's really hard to look at this data and think of them as the same, where one data, data set, you know exactly what the people participating were eating. And in this one, you have no idea. You're just relying on the fact that they listened to the dietary advice you gave them. It's, it's too hard to combine these two data sets. Several of these trials were not double-blinded. Yes, they were, which lowers the quality of the data. And the ones that were double-blinded showed no improvement. And they say this could overestimate the benefits of the intervention. Absolutely. The methods of, for estimating and reporting uh, PUFA and saturated fat consumption in each child varied as well. So so how the studies were done varied as well. So it's, it, if, if how it was done was, varies, then it makes less sense to combine these studies together, right? And here's another really important point that they uh, point out is that one of the trials also provided in addition to the main advice of consuming soybean oil to consume sardines. And they provided this in- to the intervention group and sardines uh, are full of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids, right? So the author says, so the observed benefits may at least be partially related to the marine omega-3 PUFA rather than the total PUFA consumption. And this is an important point because often it's the vegetable oils, the industrial seed oils that are recommended as the heart healthy ones, right? People also know that, you know, uh, uh, fish and fatty fish are, are healthy as well and, and should be included in the diet. But, uh, but uh, just from a commercial perspective, it's the uh, seed oils that uh, people say should be replaced for uh, things like butter and other, and cheese and all these saturated fat sources. So that so in this study, uh, in this one study where it provides support for polyunsaturated fats, it potentially could be because of the marine omega three fat, not the omega six fat. So keep that in mind as well. And so this is the last point here. The authors say, given these limitations, each individual trial of each individual trial, the quantitative pooled risk estimate should be interpreted with some caution. Yeah, absolutely. Like even though we see some sort of effect here take it with a grain of salt interpret it with some caution it's funny that they say that because then they go on to not interpret it with caution later on in the paragraph but <laughs> that's neither here nor there and then oh sorry this is the this is the very last thing and i'm really surprised that the authors finish off with this in saying that their findings demonstrate reduction in coronary heart disease events and no evidence for increased risk in long-term trials utilizing PUFA consumption at very high levels i don't know how they can say there is no evidence of increased risk when clearly the study with the largest number of participants showed a potential increased risk but any regardless they say this suggests that current recommendations for the upper limit of PUFA consumption at 10 percent of total energy need to be revisited particularly as PUFA appears to be the primary evidence-based replacement for saturated fatty acids and I simply disagree with that. I think the evidence does not support it. There is clearly uh, uh, some evidence to show that there's a potential decrease in the number of coronary heart disease events in the uh, intervention group. But when you look at the most quality data, it does not seem to support that. And then when you also look at the total deaths, total mortality, there is no difference. So it doesn't matter if you have less heart attacks from eating more uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids. If you still die at the same rate, uh, you know, possibly those uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids are causing other disease and, uh, you know, you're dying from cancer or whatever it may be. Uh, It doesn't matter. What matters is does the intervention make you live a longer life and if, the, if it does not then there's no <laughs> there's no benefit to it and it should not be the common mainstream recommendation and so I'll end the uh, uh, my critique of this uh, paper here and just uh, let you know that for the next episode I'm going to dive even deeper into this and uh, go into some of the data that they look into in this study particularly this Minnesota study uh, that had the largest number of participants, remember, of the 13,600 people pooled together, 9,000 of them were from this one study, the Minnesota it says CS here, which is Coronary Survey. Sometimes it's the Coronary Experiment, the Minnesota Coronary Experiment. And we will take a deep dive into that particular study and see what we can learn from that one. Until then, thanks for watching, everyone. Thanks again for watching till the end. As always, I hope you found what you heard useful, entertaining, and that you learned something. If you have any other questions related to health, training, and nutrition that you'd like me to answer on the podcast, you can either leave a comment or email me at newsletter at jmartfit.com. That's all I have for you today, ladies and gents. Connect with me on social media at jmartfit on Instagram and jmartmoves on Facebook. Or get my free bodyweight training program at subscribepage.com bodybasics. Jmart out.